In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I'm delighted to be with you from uh, this location for the first time on Sunday morning. You've seen me at that location from time to time in the past couple of months. Um, when one shows up in a new parish, one always has to get used to some of the liturgical idiosyncrasies of a new place. Uh, if All Souls has been your only Anglican experience, you won't know that despite our claims to all worship the same way, we Anglicans have a surprising diversity of ways we manifest our prayer book principles and liturgies. Um, before I was ordained, my mentoring priest once told me that every parish does their liturgies a little differently, and every parish does their liturgies exactly the right way. Well, one thing that's a liturgical novelty to me is our use during Lent of our Ash Wednesday collect as our post-communion prayer. Um, that's new to me, but I don't mind it at all because that uh, collect is actually one of my very favorite prayers. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time with you, thinking with you about just what we're praying for in that collect. Uh, I start, however, not with a collect, but actually with our gospel reading this morning from Luke chapter 13, if you want to look at that. Luke 13, verses 1 through 9. And in this passage, we twice hear a rather stern utterance from our Lord, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's a very serious thing to say, and, and so we ought to get clear on just what it means and why Jesus says it. So then, what do we repent from? Well, the answer is sin, of course. The Sunday school answer in this case is the right one. And we can see this from the same end result that Jesus points to, as Paul does in a very familiar passage. Surely we recall the Pauline phrase that the wages of sin is death. And so too, then, does Jesus tell us that if we do not repent of sin, if we do not turn away from sin, we will all receive the compensation of sin. We will all likewise perish. But Jesus issues this warning as a response to a common misconception that his audience had, and perhaps one that even pervades our current culture, that bad things happen to bad people. Of course, even being Americans and not Canadians, we're often polite enough not to put it that way. Rather, I've been informed on occasion that good things happen to good people, which of course is demonstrably false and is basically the flip side of what Christ's interlocutors say here in, in verse 2 of our reading. Here in, in Luke 13, we learn that there had apparently been some Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, as the text says. That's a rather sanitized way of saying that when these Galileans were up at the temple offering their sacrificial animals, as was the custom of the law, Pilate had these Galileans killed along with their sacrificial animals. It seems as though it's long been the case that worship spaces are not immune from random acts of violence. So the people put the question to Jesus, and, and Jesus, good teacher as he is, restates the people's question this way. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? The people were saying, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, and really bad things happen to the worst sinners. Right, Jesus? And Jesus says, actually, no. No, worse sinners do not suffer a worse death. And in fact, if you all do not repent of your sin, you all will suffer the same. And you might think that you're better than these people who suffered this kind of death, but you're not. 
The wages of sin is death, just like it is for these Galileans and just like it is for everyone. Now, sin leads to death, and repentance is the turning away from sin, the doing a 180 away from sin. What then do we turn to? Well, the biblical phrase for the opposite of sin is righteousness. And if, as Jesus said, that sin leads to death, then the inverse must also be true, that repentance leads to, that, uh, to the righteousness that is life. And so I think we can state Christ's stern utterance here in a negative disjunction or as a positive conjunction. Repent or you will die. Repent and be righteous. As I mentioned, if you, if you glance toward the end of your bulletin, you'll find the uh, Ash Wednesday collect that we're using as our post-communion prayer. This collect was composed by Thomas Cranmer in the 16th century for the first edition of the prayer book and has been a staple of the Anglican experience of Lent ever since. And one thing I find particularly striking about this collect is the way that it captures the twofold work of Christ in our lives. That's a hallmark of good old Reformation theology. I've been told that All Souls at times tries to find itself in this liminal space between Rome and Wittenberg, so perhaps it might behoove us to have a little of Luther himself. For Luther argued that whenever we speak of righteousness, we actually have to delineate between two kinds of righteousness. I'm sure any philosophers out there will appreciate the practice of making some distinctions. These two kinds of righteousness are, are two sides of the righteousness coin. The two kinds of righteousness function as the opposite of two kinds of sin, original sin and our actual sin. We repent and we turn from two kinds of sin that leads to death. We repent and turn toward two kinds of righteousness that leads to life. Now, the first kind of righteousness, Luther calls alien righteousness. And if you're like me, you hear that phrase and you wonder just what kind of righteousness extraterrestrials have. Not those kind of aliens. Rather, the alien righteousness is a, is a foreign righteousness that properly belongs to Christ and Christ alone that comes to us from the outside. It's foreign to us. It doesn't belong to us. Rather, it's the free gift of God that justifies us through faith. And yet through faith, this foreign or alien righteousness actually becomes our own as we're, as we're united with Christ, as Christ is infused in us, Christ's righteousness makes us righteous. The second kind of righteousness Luther calls our proper righteousness, our proper righteousness. And this is the side of the project that we have something to do about it. This is our manner of living, our producing good works. This is our side of the righteousness coin. Luther is clear to say that our proper righteousness is not because we work at it alone, but rather because we work with the first and alien righteousness. All right, so with, uh, with our Lord's warning to repent in the back of our minds, mediated by Luther's ideas about two kinds of righteousness, I think we can now come to the Ash Wednesday Collect. We might simply wonder, well, what here is God being asked to do? What are the actions that we are petitioning God to perform every time we pray this prayer? We catch a glimpse of Cranmer's uh, poetic flair in the pairs or twin concepts and phrases that he joins together throughout the collect. And this practice of offering twin concepts occurs when we come to the specific petitions. So here God is asked to create and make in us new and contrite hearts. 
create and make. Are these terms standing but in opposition to one another? Or might we see them as referring to two distinguishable actions? I think the latter. I think these actions are not identical. I think we're asking God both to create and to make. When one creates something, or perhaps when God creates something, God does it instantaneously. God says, let there be light, and without a moment's notice, moment's notice there, is, there is light. Um, making is, is not so punctiliar. We petition God to create in an instant, to once for all bring something into existence that hadn't previously been in existence. Making takes some time. Making takes some patience. Making takes some process. But the God who can create the cosmos in an instant is not averse to patiently engaging in some processes that take some time. But what is it, then, that God is being petitioned to create and to make? Another parallel concept pair, new and contrite hearts. And this pair, I think, aligns with the previous pair, which then both align with Luther's conception of the twin aspects of righteousness. Create, I think, refers to our alien righteousness that comes anew. Make, I think, refers to our proper righteousness that comes from contrition. We ask God to create new hearts in us. We ask God to make contrite hearts in us. And that is, we ask God to help us repent, for we know that unless we do, we will all likewise perish. And at this point, we can pick up the second half of the gospel reading, this parable that Jesus tells about the fig tree that's not producing any figs. And we can home in to focus on our proper righteousness, that is the telos, the goal of God making contrite hearts in us. Like many of Jesus' parables, um, we who have had new hearts created in us are likened to some plant. Elsewhere in the gospels, we're grapevine or, or wheat or the like. Here, we're fig trees. And we, like the fig tree, have been planted. We have repented of original sin and have the alien righteousness of Christ infused into us. And yet in the parable here, we're not producing fruit. Our actual sin, the sins we continue to commit on a daily basis, prevent us from manifesting our own proper righteousness. And in the parable, the owner of the fig tree wants to cut it down. It's taking a valuable space. But the gardener says, look, leave it alone one more year. I'll dig around it and add on some manure. This, I submit, is illustrative of the making process of having a contrite heart made in us. And this is the process that we are intentionally engaged in this Lent. During Lent, we dig around and we apply fertilizer to our souls in order to eventually produce some spiritual figs. And we do have a part to play in, uh, in, in bringing about our, our proper righteousness. There is something we can do about this about it in this project, and I think this is characterized in the next couple clauses in the collect. We can participate in this process by worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness. Worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness. I don't imagine we seeing those phrases grace the covers of any books on a bestseller list anytime soon. We'd rather be told how to live one's best life now or that we ought to wash our face. We don't want to be told to acknowledge our wretchedness. But this is just what Jesus' interlocutors needed to hear, and I suggest most of us as well. 
They needed to hear that they were no better than those Galileans who were slain by Pilate. They were no better than those on whom the tower in Siloam fell. They were just as much sinners. They were just as wretched as anyone. And only in embracing this and realizing this and, and acknowledging this does real repentance come. Real repentance that leads to righteousness. Moreover, in, in keeping with Christ's stern utterance, this parable ends on a rather somber note. There's an expiration date to the owner's patience. There's a no-deal Brexit on the table for this fig tree here. Verse 9, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And so Jesus describes an urgency with which we need to repent. Do it now or else. And I think this is a message we need to hear from time to time, and this time is one of them. And if you're like Jesus' interlocutors here, thinking you're better than others, needing to be convicted of your sin, needing to acknowledge your wretchedness, then by all means, use this Lent to do so, and do so even now. But if that's you, perhaps you might want to tune me out for a second, because it might be the case that some of you don't need any extra help being convicted of your sins. Your inner critic quite readily provokes you to lament your sins and acknowledge your wretchedness. You know your wretchedness only too well. Well, for those who fall into that category, I'd like to draw your attention to the way this colic characterizes God. For instance, in the opening line, Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing that you have made. Yes, you and I, we all are sinners. We all are wretched. But God does not hate you. Your sin, your wretchedness, is not a barrier to God's love. Rather, as the call it goes on, the God of all mercy is readily able to offer you perfect remission and forgiveness of your original and actual sins. This is what comes of repentance. This is what comes of the lamentation and the acknowledgement of sin. Remission and forgiveness. Bringing about in us both alien and our own proper righteousness. And so as we come near to the middle of Lent, do use the tools of Lent for the conviction of sin. Through your fasting, through your reading of scripture, through your hearing the law proclaimed in our liturgies, lament your sins and acknowledge your wretchedness as is a proper outflow of a contrite heart. But heed also the good news that God does not hate you, that the God of all mercy offers you a way out of your sins. For it is only in God's mercy that we can adequately respond to Christ's stern utterance. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Amen.